Greetings and salutations, board game fans. The Dice Pirates are back. This is episode 37. This episode, we're going to be jumping into some of our favorite pattern games. going to be talking about Calico, Sagrada, and of course, the classic Azul. I'm your host, Ian, as always, and this time I am joined just by Matt. Matt, it's a real throwback. Just you and me in the podcast today. Ahoy! Uh, yeah, I've been down to the brig where we're holding uh, Aaron. Uh, he seems uh, content. Uh, I give him a number of solo board games to keep himself occupied, and maybe he'll uh, straighten out and be back uh, with us soon up here on the deck. Only if he promises to behave, and it has not been going well lately. No. All right, so we're going to jump right into it. Matt, what is going on? Do you have a soapbox for us today? Any rant? Uh, Yeah, man. I got a rant. Well, actually, I'm reacting to a rant, uh, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Uh, Board Game Geek is always a great place to go and see uh, what are we angry about this week, folks? What <laughs> what, are, what what are gamers unhappy about, us board gamers? And uh, this week, uh, one of the top uh, hot discussions in the forum is people reacting to a, uh, a rant from uh, board game user Tim Earle, who uh, brought us this. Not every game needs a solo mode, a rant. Uh, I won't read the whole thing, uh, but the basic gist of it is this. Uh, it seems like every game announcement is immediately followed by posts less comments asking about a solo mode, with some people declaring that they won't consider buying it if it doesn't have one. Is it not obvious that a solo mode is less than ideal for some, if not most, games built for multiplayer? Why do people look at a game that involves, uh, obviously involves player interaction and then ask for a solo mode? Uh, his basic take is that, uh, and I gotta admit, this is—he he does raise a sort of a point here. Uh, adding a solo mode probably adds to development time, components, which ultimately makes for a more expensive game. Uh, when the solo mode may or may not be an actually a useful fit for every game, not everybody wants it, and he's basically upset about that and says, like, why? What's up with these solo modes? I find that to be a real... That kind of, like, resonated with me. I found that to be a really interesting uh, point of view. I don't agree with it, but I did think it was really interesting because it points to something that we've talked about on the podcast a couple of different times. We are living in the age of solo board gaming. I mean, it is it is upon us. Uh, and I think the pandemic totally changed the dynamic about it. Instead of it being sort of a niche thing that would pop up from time to time, you'd see solo modes or a relatively small number of uh solo uh board games coming out and now it is becoming like more ubiquitous but i mean is that really like in any way like harming the game development process i don't know what do you think ian is this uh... um it is i mean like you mentioned it's kind of an odd it's kind of an odd topic to sort of bring up so i do agree i mean i definitely think that there is a certain element of like design space that is taken up like trying to figure out how to cram a one per like one player version of a game in that has a lot of like you know social interaction like for instance uh libertalia winds of gilcrest does have a solo version mm -hmm. that you can play and of course that in, you know comes with having an entirely separate deck that you use because you can't do normal things it has some additional pieces that you are going to be putting on and some adjustments to the way you play the game that does allow you to play and uh, it's kind of a different game when you play it solo. Like that's kind of one of the interesting things I, I think about this is when you take a game that 
at its best is played with four or five people Mm -hmm. and you turn it into a single player game the game is often very different it's not the same game anymore and so i mean i don't I don't disagree. I mean, I think it's neat that a lot of games do have solo options because that way, if you're only able to get people around ops, like occasionally you can play the game by yourself. But I, I maybe honestly do agree with him a little bit that maybe some games, honestly, I would go even further. I'd say not every game needs to be playable with two people. Like it's okay to say this game is for three and up, you know, like this game is for three, four players. And if you play with fewer than that, it's just not going to work. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't think that's an inherently bad thing to do if that's just the way that your game is designed. Yeah. Um, I feel like I, I feel like he's right and wrong. I agree with you. I think he's right and wrong. I think we are now in the age where we're seeing... Uh, we're putting a solo mode in is becoming a box that a lot of people have to check in order to get a game uh, made or get a game, like, funded... Uh, because there's an increased demand for it. And I do worry a little bit that, you know, he's probably right. Not every game really does work. Let me tell you, is a great example. Not every game is built around a solo mode, or the solo mode is such a vastly different game that it may not even, like, you know, feel right. Um, and so I do worry that, like, okay, our designer is just tacking on. Are we getting into the era of the tacked-on solo mode? I don't totally know if I agree that it's adding to development time and costs in most cases. I mean, maybe development time, but probably not cost, since in most cases the solo mode only involves maybe an extra set of cards or a pamphlet or something with some additional rules. I just, I, I don't know if I've really encountered a solo mode that I felt like was just a huge, <laughs> a huge thing. What's adding on to cost more than anything, and we'll talk about that in a moment, is... Uh, production value minis super thick cardstock acrylic stuff giant boxes you know i think really like the demand for like luxury experiences is what's making games really expensive and expensive to ship so you know i think not every game needs a solo mode and it does probably devalue the solo mode for it to be tacked on constantly as a marketing ploy to kind of help in the crowdfunding phase so that is kind of a bummer but solo board gaming is not a niche anymore i mean it really is a viable part of the hobby our good friend, uh, our good friend Lily, who I hope hears this, and I hope she's doing well, of Play It Solo. I mean, you know, her, uh, I don't know if it's her primary way that she plays games, but that's a significant part of the way she experiences board games, is solo. I'm the opposite. Uh, I've been really fortunate to always have had, like, good groups of people to play games with, and I don't find myself playing board games solo that much. It's still something that, every time I do it, it feels slightly odd, you know? It feels just like... A little bit uh, maybe I'm just too much of an extrovert like it just feels slightly odd even though I look around and I have a lot of good games that play solo and scale down really well to it any game that's sort of uh, thematic and fighty to me usually feels still feels pretty good down at the solo level because you're still just doing the same core thing running around rolling dice yeah. and punching stuff I guess like as we talk through this and as I think about it really you know, I, I'm very glad that solo mode is becoming something that's more common to have because it does just make things better overall. Yeah. But I guess my, my biggest thing is just that if it's put in in such a way that it's not true to the actual core of the game and it doesn't really let you play the game the way it was meant to be done, that is it probably might in it. some ways... Yeah, it's, it, it may be in some ways kind of a, a misnomer, even almost, you know, false marketing because you don't get to play the game the way it should be. But yeah. that uh, definitely something that... 
you know, hopefully we can have Lily on and talk about that again sometime soon. That would be awesome. Dude, but, we should do yeah. that. This is a formal ask. Are you out there, Lily? Come back on the board game. Please show. come back. Come back on the show. You did mention it earlier, though, that the thing that really is driving costs up is overly designed add-ons. So actually, I do want to go ahead and kind of talk about the Castles of Burgundy Special Edition game found that just recently got released. And, uh, you know, yay, look, they were 900% funded on the first day. You know how that goes. It's, yeah, uh, all of the, course they were. All, all that silly marketing stuff. But, you know, I mean, it, it did come out. They finally have a defined set of what is going to be in the game what are you purchasing stuff like that and i mean i'm not going to lie it looks nice you know i mean it looks deluxe the expansion that they have that comes specifically with this it's like a four tiered board that you know looks nice and thick it's solid you know high quality you know cardboard on there the player boards have insets so you can put your buildings in there you can put your tiles in there and they're not going to move around on you all the time that's pretty nice like i mean it is you know so much just nice looking things but also just genuinely quality of life stuff that you know you've always wanted if you played the original game so it looks good but matt did we need it you know oh well no i mean certainly we didn't need this <laughs> We didn't. Uh, did we need it? No. I mean, it is uh, that's that you can't say. I mean, the, you can't say that we needed it. The original Castle Burgundy is still a great game. It plays great, and it reflects as we've talked about it a lot on the show how it looks like garbage, but it reflects the design sensibilities of a different era of board game manufacture, where it was really like board games are supposed to be a relatively inexpensive hobby compared to video gaming or other things, and so you get something to market that is affordable to the broadest you know, cross-section of people. Uh, the components are functional. They do what they need to do, but they're not lavish. The artwork is utilitarian and simple. And yeah, Castles of Burgundy uh, really just comes out of a different era when production value wasn't even at the forefront of anybody's thinking. Like, a good game was about the rules. Is this a good system? Does it have a good gameplay hook? Is it fun? Is it challenging? And so game, you know, if you look back at that early 2000s era of, like, Euros especially stuff coming out of, like, Ravensburger. <laughs> I mean, that stuff looks crazy to our eyes now here in the, uh, you know, the 2020s uh, because we expect something real different. We're in the era of the luxury board game. We want it to feel good when we touch it. We want it to look good while we're sitting around the table looking at it. We want it to sound good. You know, the dice are heavy. The components are metal dice, metal coins clinking, all of that the sensory experience around board games has gotten bigger. So I know we didn't need this, but in a way, maybe we did because it makes Burgundy more like this is what modern board gamers, for better or worse, are looking for. So uh, we didn't need it, but I definitely think we wanted it a lot, <laughs> clearly. Yeah, and I mean, we we have talked about this where, you know, what better game to have this than Castles of Burgundy, which people have been wanting for a, a very very long time. I've, I will say, like... I've wanted it. <laughs> there are, you know, obviously, I mean, there is a lot of stuff that goes into this game found being a, you know, far newer uh, Kickstarter site, you know, much less popular than Kickstarter, but having recently had, you know, a lot of investors putting money into it, it makes sense that the amounts that you're spending for this is actually relatively reasonable compared to a lot of what we see coming out of Kickstarter. Yeah. You know, the classic pledge that includes basically everything except for the miniatures. There's a bunch of inexplicably 
nicely designed and huge castle miniatures that yeah. are going to come with this. But if you don't want those, you're going to spend $90 on the game, which includes, you know, all of the unlock stretch goals. It has everything that comes in the special edition. Got your, you know, expansions there. That's that's not that It could have been a lot worse. Yeah. I mean, you know, a, a new game coming out like you know, like this around this size would be, what, $50, $60 probably? And so, I mean, you're not adding that much onto it for all of this extra stuff. That's surprisingly cheap, you know, from, and obviously there are other reasons for it, but that's not that's not terrible. So I, I can see this actually being a decently, like, well-received deluxe edition. Yeah, I would say my two reactions to this, uh, uh, without getting into, like, I don't know, I don't want to get into another rant about, you know, is this good for us as, as a gaming community to be, like, are, are, like, I worry that we're heading into this space where, like, $100 games are becoming very normal. Like, that doesn't feel real great for, like, the sustainability. So that's one level where I look at this. Uh, but on the other hand, these prices are way worse, are way better than they could have been. Uh, when you look at some of the stuff that's come out recently, especially deluxe, big box, revivals of old games, like, the base box being over $100 or, or well over $100 would not have surprised me. But So basically, they came out with three you know, packages that you can get a 95 euro, which is about a hundred and what do we say? That's like 102 us dollars for the, the special edition all in. So just over a hundred dollars for, uh, the special edition box, big box full of stretch goals, those crazy castle miniatures. You can go down, you get under a hundred dollars. If you get, you get 85 euros, if you lose the, the castle miniatures. And then if you want to go nuts, their Royal pledge, the big mamma jamma which has a whole bunch of stuff including neoprene play mats and acrylic hex tokens is 142 euros which that's kind of that's the over the top price that i sort of more expected but the fact that you can get a modest upgrade to your game for 100 bucks is not the end of the world it's not the worst price i've seen so i actually like the pricing on this for the most part and i think they nailed like what they needed to do i I completely I actually think that the 85 euro classic pledge with no miniatures is probably the one that you should get, which is really funny to me because if you look, uh, it's that one's only been pledged. Uh, that that's the least pledged one. I, I'm yeah, just no, I'm no, I'm just noticing this in like real time while we're talking about this, looking at the site. Yeah, most the, the, most people the, are getting the royal pledge, the really expensive one. <laughs> yeah, you have almost 4,000 people who got the most expensive one. Then you got 2,000 people with the the one with the minis, and then less than 600 people yeah got the classic the low one i mean i guess you know like what 10 extra euros but still i mean come on the uh i think the basic like without all the fancy stuff i mean you don't need those play mats and the castle miniatures look really cool but i mean they also kind of like mess up the aesthetic because everything else is tiles yeah so then you have this dumb castle like sitting on your board uh i think they nailed this because really what they needed to upgrade was one the art it's so much more vibrant almost fantasy level like art yeah. of like the castles and i think it's great the recessed player board where your little hexes like lay down in Fantastic. and don't slide around brilliant the dice even are just like nicer looking dice the whole thing is just i love it i think this looks great and i don't actually think you need to get the most expensive version to get what you want out of this i think it's great definitely worth looking at the stretch goals are being unlocked on a timed basis so we actually don't know what all of them are going to be yet they will you can see on their page uh, the countdown to when the next one unlocks so it is worth potentially waiting and getting a feel for everything that's in there before putting your pledge in but definitely 
definitely someone we're going to keep our eye on moving forward. And Matt, you're, you're probably going to get this, right? I'm probably going to get this. Uh, I'm still sort of on the fence of it. I'm, I'm such a cheapskate. Like $100 is a big investment for a board game. Every time I think about spending $100 on a board game, I think like, okay, how many times a year am I really going to pull this off the shelf and play it? That's uh, fair. Uh, and so, like, like, what's the fun to like cost ratio of like a hundred dollar board game? Now, I think I would play this more than um, I don't know. What's another really expensive game that we talked Twilight about? Twilight Imperium. Twilight Imperium. Yeah, like that one's a harder thing to justify because uh, that does only come out like once a year. But in the end, I think Twilight Imperium makes sense to me because of you're gonna how epic the experience is. You know. So yeah, I, you gotta have there's there's levels know. of you have to rationalize it somehow. So I'm I'm sure that at the end of it you'll probably pick it up, but it's you probably have to convince yourself a little bit. I <laughs> I imagine once we get there. Probably. Alrighty, we're gonna go ahead and move on. We're actually gonna try out a new game. I don't even have a name for it yet, but Matt, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some bad descriptions of a game. A lot All like right. you know when somebody explains the plot of a movie badly and you try to figure out what it is. We're gonna do that. We're gonna you know you know what's the worst way you can describe a game and we're gonna see if you can guess it so we'll see if we'll figure out a name for it eventually but you know let's give this a shot okay all right so the the first poorly explained game here colorful windows ruined by dots oh that's sagrada that is in fact sagrada <laughs> right out <laughs> the bat that's clearly sagrada <laughs> colorful windows ruined by dots um that's a great I have game. always wished that there were not not dots on the because it would just look so much prettier. But well, you I have mean, to have the dots. You I mean. have to have the dots. I don't know how you do the game otherwise. Alrighty, I got I got another one for you here. Your powerful army of demons and monsters kill themselves out of societal pressure. <laughs> what? Your powerful army of demons and monsters kill themselves out of societal pressure. Um Wow, that that one is like confusing. Uh, a game where you have an army of demons and monsters. Give you a hint. It's part yeah. of a trilogy of games. A trilogy of games. Oh, this is Blood Rage. It's actually Rising Sun. But, but. It's, yes, that is. Uh, <laughs> yes, that but is you were kind there. of. A, that was on the right track. Yeah, I would not have gotten there if you hadn't said the trilogy because I forgot. You know what's funny is. Uh, I for, I forget that there's even demons and monsters in Blood Rage. Uh, not Blood Rage, I'm sorry, in Rising Sun. I feel like there's such an afterthought in Rising Sun. They're, they're not as like significant as they are in Blood Rage, and definitely not as significant as they are in Ankh. Yeah, like, that's true. They're, yeah, they are far le- They take up far less space in that one. Yeah. All right, this is fun. Let me, give you, let me give you another one here real quick. Okay. You invent a time machine, but instead of preventing a global catastrophe, you use it to loan yourself water and metal. Oh, that's anachrony. That is anachrony. <laughs> we have this powerful time machine. Yeah. Well, let's just use it to give ourselves water. In the- Anachrony's theme is insane <laughs> because it is like if you've never played anachrony, I mean, you basically you go back in time and you take out a loan against yourself. Basically, you're like, I'm going to go get some water from the past back when the Earth still had water. But then you have to, like, put it back before you cause a par- paradox in the time stream if you don't go back and, like, return the water. Which is really an elaborate way to deal with like a loan and having to pay back the loan. I feel like at some point in the development process, this was a game about uh, interest and like taking out loans. And then somebody was like, but what if it was also time travel? <laughs> what if it was time travel 
Dave. Uh, Anachrony is bananas. I, I don't even know if I like that game. Every time I sit down to play that game, I feel like I immediately get confused. Yeah, I, honestly, I would almost enjoy it more if it was just a game about loans. I don't know. If it a game about honest. loans? Uh, space loans. Space yeah. commerce. <laughs> there's, there's weirder themes out there. Yeah. There are weirder themes out there. Uh, uh, this all right. Let me go ahead and give you one more. All right, we got one be, more. I love it. Should be a pretty easy one. Humans and toasters fight to the death. <laughs> Humans and toasters. Uh, did they make a brave little toaster game? Uh, <laughs> I don't. Uh, all my brave little toaster fans out there will get that reference. Um, classic, classic. Hu- human and toasters fight to the death. Yes. Uh, all right. Here's I a hint. Toaster is a nickname. Uh, humans and toasters. Is this Gekito bot battles? It is not. It is not. Okay. No. I don't know. Uh, here's another hint. Uh, this is based on a popular TV series. Uh, ooh, it's based on a popular TV series. This is not ringing a bell. Not ringing. It's Battlestar Galactica. Oh, I haven't seen that in so. What is toaster reference to? It's the the Cylons. The Cylons. The Cylons they look, are oh, toasters. they kind of look like they have toaster heads. Yeah. Yeah, and they were they were always called toasters. Uh, by the uh, by, the humans as they ran away. Man, I haven't watched that show in a long time. Yeah, it's been I completely a bit. forgot. I've never played that board game. I've always wanted to. That just that was one of the great. Uh, yeah, that was one of the games. great, great games of, of kind of that era. Have didn't to I, that. Have to try. Did I hear that they're remaking that board game? I believe so. That'll be exciting. Okay. Well, there we go. That's a fun new game, Ian. Uh, what, are gonna, what are we going to call that? Uh, games that someone who's never played it describes to you. That's a garbage title. Wow. Yeah, we'll leave the naming up to let, you. Uh, yeah. Let's, uh, how about we call it Ruined Recaps? Ruined Recaps. You, you are a savant at this. It's amazing. I'm a, it's like, a, you know, I'm a marketing professional. What can I do? You know, that one is true. One and done. Uh, <laughs> All righty. Ruined Recaps. Ruined Recaps. That was fun. We'll have to bring that one up again. Look forward to getting into that. Of course, we're going to jump into our main discussion in just a second. Alrighty, and welcome back to the Dice Pirates, where we're going to go ahead and dive into our main topic today, which is a look at a favorite genre of games of ours, which is, uh, for lack of a better term, pattern building games. Uh, Games where you're trying to put together shapes, colors, tiles, uh, cats even, and uh, make patterns to score points. we spend a lot of time, I feel like, on the Dice Pirates talking about, and this is probably as much my fault as anybody, talking about games of action, adventure, and thematic uh, high concepts, uh, you know, dungeon crawls and whatnot. But there is a, a lot of delight to be had in these games that are uh, more tightly focused on puzzle solving and putting together kind of a pretty little arrangement. Uh, Ian, what do we love? What do you love about these kinds of games? Uh, I really like these games because they're just they're relaxing they're very zen and uh i mean like in some of these you can mess with other people around the table but in general and unless you're playing with people who are intentionally trying to do that it's a lot more of a you know competitive cooperative experience almost where you get to the end you're like all right we're both trying to do the best we can but then once we get to the end let's sort of just look at each other and say hey this is that looks awesome you did a great job you know you're you're playing against yourself but there are other people at the table and i like the relaxed atmosphere that comes with that especially these are the sort of games that my wife and i will play with each other a lot mm-hmm. something that we can just kind of sit down on a nice tight 
on a nice date night, have a glass of wine and just sort of enjoy without being too stressful. Yeah, these are uh, I, these are perfect like games for couples. I think for the most part, I think all three games that we're gonna talk about tonight are like great at two player, and all these games do have that good quality of giving you a little project to work on, um, some little thing that you're trying to build, whether it's the perfect stained glass window in Sagrada or uh, a intricate tile in Azul uh, or a pile of cats. <laughs> Calico. I don't know what that game is all about. Uh, Can you tell he's never played it? Uh, yeah, I've never played it. Um, the uh, that's the game about cats, right? Am I thinking that of... is the game about cats? You're yeah. making a quilt. You're you're piecing a quilt together, and if uh, your quilt is comfy enough, cats will come and lay on it. It's very cute. Yeah. So it is. You are making a pile of cats, kind of. Uh, that is end. true. You are. At, yes, yeah. You are. But all these games give you that little satisfaction of like something to build, and that becomes very fun. They're competitive games, but they're not cutthroat. I think these are great games for a group where some people may be like intimidated about coming to the table to play board games because they've had like experiences in the past where it was too too much pressure. Like these are very chill, chill vibes, good cozy games uh, is what I think makes these work. Love a cozy game. Yeah, and the games that I think are really successful in this genre have. Uh, a compelling puzzle, but it's not like something that you feel like you're like beating your head against. Um, it's like there's a simple like puzzle hook of like how to make the arrangements to score points. Um, it's something that's very satisfying, uh, but not just like brutally difficult. And I think all three of these games uh, sort of thread that needle of it's like oh that's a, it's, there's a good compelling puzzle there, but and it's very satisfying, but it's not too difficult. So I guess first off, we'll start with Azul. Uh, Ian, you played this one more recently than me, although I've played it and I like it a lot. Give us a quick rundown. What's Azul about? What is Azul about? Okay, so basically the story of the game is you're trying to design a beautiful tile wall uh, of this palace. And so you have in front of you, you have your player board, which has a 5 by 5 grid of different colored tiles, different pattern tiles. Each row is going to have one of every type of tile, every color. And so each player takes turns choosing tiles from this area to the area in the center, which has collections of tiles. And there's going to be, depending on how many people you're playing with, there's going to be a number of like factory areas that are going to have these tiles. So you may have, if you're playing with two people, there's going to be five separate circles containing tiles in there. And if you take one color tile, you have to take all of the tiles. And the, go the goal is just to get as many points as possible by building the biggest mosaic that you can. Once you complete one row, the game is over, though. So you want to try and avoid a row while still building out as much as possible. And uh, there's a lot of, like, there is a fair amount of strategy and looking ahead on this because you don't just take tiles and put them directly onto, onto your mosaic. You have to fill to the left of your mosaic. There is a row where you have to fill that row with the color before you can fill that color into your mosaic. So there is like a lot of thinking ahead and, you know, what do I need to get next? If I've already filled a, a color in that row, I can't use that color again. So I have to make sure I'm not leaving myself vulnerable because if you take, if you're forced to take tiles that can't go into your mosaic, you're going to get negative points for every tile that you can't use. Yeah. So you can very quickly end up in a situation where somebody drops five tiles on you that you didn't need, and all of a sudden you're losing seven, eight points. And uh, so, you know, Matt, 
it's hard. It's, I'm not doing a great job at describing this one just because there is like a bit of, uh, not fiddly, but there's a lot of small mechanics to it. But it's one of those games that once you get the the pattern of it, once you start getting the feel of the, the flow of the game, it actually kind of goes really quickly and it's very satisfying to play. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of things I like about this game. Um, but I will say that of the, the ones we have today, and, and I guess I haven't played Caligo as we established, I'm not sure, but this one is the most, uh, has the most player act interaction, I think, I think more so even than Sagrada. And, uh, and, and in that way can be a little more tense and not quite rises to the level of cutthroat, but the choice you make about which, uh, tiles to grab, from the center area and bring over to your space to work can really hose another player. Uh, it's not quite it's not quite so cutthroat that like you're gonna like intentionally target somebody. Like you're not gonna grab tiles that you don't need just to like screw somebody because you would get like potentially totally screwed and lose points. But it is very possible and happens very often, particularly at a higher player game where you're working towards the same color of tile or and so you're going to get there first in the turn order and leave somebody high and dry with like tiles they don't need um it's also it's a little bit more uh competitive in that way but it still has that quality of trying to solve like an intricate little puzzle and slowly create the scoring rows and things the other thing that is immediately eye-catching about this and i think the reason that it has sort of endured and been popular over the years is it just looks really compelling when it's all out the tiles all have beautiful uh colorful patterns on them it's not just piles of like red yellow blue squares they each tile has its own unique uh mosaic like pattern on it so everything just all set up and laid out is immediately like you just kind of want to get in there and start playing with this stuff it's really it's a looker yeah it, it looks great i mean it feels great too i mean you know they're nice solid tiles that you're able to put on your board and so as they start to fill up your mosaic it looks really nice to have them together i'm a huge fan of you know anything that isn't you know little cardboard chits on the yeah. table anything gives you a little bit of a clack as you put it down it's you know it's a reason why i think splendor is you know is, is popular it is because of the quality of the components and azul has this this same thing where it would still be good but i think the tiles that you're putting down do a lot to you know, build up the, the satisfaction of playing it. I agree. This is one of those games that gets the center, like kind of what we were talking about the, with Burgundy, like and the in modern design really understands the sensory experience around these games. And uh, this game would be totally playable if all the mosaic tiles were cardboard, like, chits. And if this game was made 25 years ago, that's 100% what it would have been. It would have been, a, you would have bought this game and there would have been like 19... Uh, punch board uh sheets of like chits that you'd have to like punch out and the game would still be just as playable uh you could even have the pretty patterns printed on there but you're right like laying handling them and then like laying them down to create your your mosaics would be not nearly as satisfying and you wouldn't have noticed it 20 years ago but now that more people are paying attention to that kind of stuff like you see this game and you want to like ooh, i want to play with those little tiles so yeah it's a good game it has a sensory quality that makes it very very fun so uh, to kind of like elaborate more on like the challenging hook of it, there's a real tension because you're drafting from the center the tiles that you need. And when you move them to your player board, to kind of explain what Ian was saying a, a little more, you have on the left side rows of one, two, three. Uh, you, you have a, rows that are increasing in length 
of, of spaces where you need to put your tile, empty slots where you need to uh, put your tiles. So you might grab uh, one red tile and put it in the second row. And then when you grab a second red tile, then you can move a red tile onto uh, the actual mosaic board onto the right. Uh, you can't move them until you complete a row. And so it becomes really tense of like trying to figure out like where you want to, uh, what you want to draft and where you want to place it. And if you're going to not be able to complete a row and get, you know, totally hosed at the end. So there's a real tension that kind of hangs over this game that's a little different than some of the other games that we're talking about today, but it's still very, very fun. Yeah, and it does have the element, before we move on, like it does have that element too that a lot of these games do where as you get towards the end of the game, it becomes a little bit more tense because you your space is oh, limited. Yeah. You can only do so many things. This game, I think, has less of that than Sagrada and Calico because within this game, you definitely, even, the game's going to end generally before you are so limited that everything you take is going to be negative points, and so you can avoid that for the most part. But there is a certain amount of planning that must be done once you get to the later turns because your decision space starts to become a lot more restricted. And if you don't think about what you're picking and what's going to be left in the pool, then you could get uh, stuck with something. So I do like that it, it starts off very easy and it starts to constrict you a bit, but honestly, not too much. No, not too much. I would say my final thought on Azul of the games that we're talking about today that I've played, which is only Azul and Sagrada, I find this one to be ever so slightly more complex every time we sit down to play it i have to kind of reacquaint my brain with its hook uh and i don't it it's probably my least favorite of uh of the of the pair um but i'm always i'm generally like always up for it but it's kind of like i don't love it as much as i love sagrada which we'll talk about at the at the end yes it just has it has more steps to it for sure we're going to go ahead and next I want to talk about Calico. So this is a, you know, another obviously, you know, pattern making game where you're going to be choosing tiles that you're going to put onto your quilt area. Each person has a player board that has a number of open squares that you're going to be placing your tiles onto. These tiles are extremely brightly colored. You have, I believe, uh, you have six different colors and six different patterns, and every tile is going to be one of the combination of the two. It may be polka dotted pink, or it may be a striped, you know, uh, yellow. It's so any combination of those. And additionally, you have a set of three uh, cats that act as essentially the scoring uh, opportunities that you have, and they will have various patterns. And so if you're able to, some of the cats will require you to either get a number of the same pattern tile together or maybe a certain shape of a certain uh, pattern together. And if you fulfill that, you get to take one of these adorable little cat uh, tokens and you get to place it onto your quilt on one of those patterns. Additionally, if you get similar colors together, you will also get a similarly colored button that will get to go onto your quilt. So each turn, you have a set of two tiles. You choose which one to place onto your board, and then you will pick another one. So there's a lot of choice that you have. So you're not, you're really going to get locked into until you get to the very end. You're going to get locked into putting down something you don't want to. And unlike Azul, like where you often are going to find yourself having to choose things that you don't want or having to mitigate that, this game is more about how do you maximize the points that you're going to get, which I, I like a lot. It is very visually appealing to look at, 
And because the board itself is an inset board, as you start to put your tiles in, there's no worry about them moving around. They will keep each other in. And so you start to see your quilt getting pieced in and getting filled together. And it becomes a very pleasing experience to get to just put those down and watch as you get more buttons and more cats come and lay down on top of your quilt. It's a really enjoyable, you know, surprisingly tactile experience. Um, this game, uh, two, two things. One, I got to say at the top, every time you mention this game, and you, I know you like to play this one a lot, you and... Uh, you and Tori, so uh, it's come up from like time to time. Every time you mention it, I get it confused in my brain with the game Isle of Cats, which I've also <laughs> never, which I've never played, but like visually, like sticks in my brain because it has these like Tetris like pieces of like long cats that you like lay out and interact together, and that's what I always picture in my mind. So when you say Calico, I'm thinking about Isle of Cats every time. But now I have pulled up Calico on my computer, and I know the game you're talking about. This game's uh, entire aesthetic is the word cozy. It is so lovely to look at, and it definitely has that feel of like a very chill, very comfy game. You could put on some like soothing acoustic guitar music in the background it, <laughs> to play while you're playing it. It looks awesome. But it yeah. sounds like the puzzle, though, it sounds like the aesthetic is almost a little bit deceiving. The puzzle is a little bit tricky from what I gather. I'm looking at some of the reviews and there's a hilarious review on Board Game Geek called uh, The Joy of Being Punched in the Face, which I recommend. <laughs> I recommend everyone read who talks about basically as your choices narrow, this game gets surprisingly tense. Does that feel accurate to you? I mean, yes, yeah, in a similar way to Sagrada, which we're going to talk about next. Like, not only can you score by getting patterns and colors in groups together, there are also three different tiles on your board that are going to ask for combinations. Like, it'll maybe ask you to have three, uh, three of the same color and then three of another color around that one tile. Or it may want you to have a set of two, another set of two, and then another set of two. And so you're also additionally trying to fulfill those as you move around. So there is a various, a certain amount of restriction. And as your board begins to fill in, one of the differences between this and Azul is Azul will not have you finish your mosaic. Your mosaic ends when there's one row completed. And so you may not finish the entire mosaic. You generally will not. Mm -hmm. In Calico, your entire quilt will be finished. You will place every single piece on the quilt and it will be fully done. So inevitably, one of your scoring tiles is gonna get messed up. You might not get all of the right colors. Yeah. You may not get the patterns. And if you're not thinking about that early enough, if you're thinking too much about getting the right buttons and getting the right cats, you may not get all the points that you want. And so there is a balance of looking ahead and trying to figure out, okay, well, do I have a chance of getting this? Do I give up the points for getting the patterns but still get the points for the colors? Or do I go all out and just, you know, bet the home and just try to get everything? Like... You know, so it does get a little bit more stressful towards the end, but only so much. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, you are, you do still ha know what it's going to be from the beginning and you can focus on that. And sometimes you may score enough just on cats and buttons yeah. to not even have to worry about those scoring things. So while there is, a, it does get a little bit crazy. You're like, oh no, everything's messed up. I don't find it to be more stressful than something like Tiny Towns. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would be at the end, but it does feel like it, like, I think all of these games have the same quality, and it's probably true of any good pattern building game, of uh, as your choices start to narrow, like, it gets a little more sweaty. And that's probably a good thing, right? Like, if it were just, like, willy-nilly just building a shape, and it, I don't know, that doesn't feel like a game. It needs to have a little bit of a quality of, like, getting more intense uh, as it 
gets into the end game. And so that's that's a good thing. I like uh having not played this, I immediately like when you said that you will complete your quilt. That makes me really happy. Yes. <laughs> there are so many of these games where you don't actually fully complete uh the grid that you're doing. Uh Azul is like that. Like you won't actually fill up every tile on your uh little grid space. So you're just going to be completing a few different rows and columns. Uh, I don't think... No, yeah, you won't ever really complete your full grid in Azul. Like, that's probably not even possible. No, it would be a, an extremely rare circumstance for yeah. that to happen. So there's it would like be a, incredible. There's, like, a little bit of, like, not being satisfied at the end. Uh, but So I like being able to, like, fully build something. So that's kind of fun. And this is why I think that a game like Calico, of the three games we're going to talk about, I think this is my favorite game. Because even though you are trying to score the points, it is such a well-done game in terms of the art and the visual design. The buttons that you put on are these super cute little cardboard, you know, like illustrations of maybe like a a water droplet or a banana or a blueberry. They're so cute. (laughs) It's so so bright. (laughs) It's when you finally get to fill in your quilt and actually getting to finish the thing and look at it, even if you didn't get everything 100% perfect, it just feels a lot more satisfying, and it feels, like you said, just cozy than yeah. something like Azul, which is a lot more focused on making sure that everything you put down scores you the maximum number of points so you don't fall behind. Like, there's no, you only get your points at the end, and with a lot of the games that I enjoy playing with my wife, it's about just making sure that what you did is the best that you could have done in that situation. Okay, final thought on Calico and the reason why uh, you should probably buy it. I think anyone who has a, a beating heart should buy it. And I just now realized it. The little cats in the game have names. Carlton, have Wrinkle, names. Gertrude, Ginger. Come on. <laughs> this is, this oh, is a, that's incredible. Every cat has a name. I believe there are like 10 cats or 11 cats that you can choose from. So your game's going to be different every single time. There's all sorts of different patterns and different like shapes that you're going to be asked to get. So not only is it different, but it's just so darn cute. It's It's got good vibes. Good vibes from Calico. All right, so Calico is a game of delightful vibes. And uh, we're going to, uh, now for something completely different, a game of uh, that's pretty, but a little bit more chaotic and definitely a lot more random. And that is Sagrada. Um, I'll try to explain this one. Uh, Sagrada is a game of uh, j- uh, where you will be rolling big handfuls of colorful uh, translucent dice that look like uh, delicious little lozenges, uh, actually, but don't eat them. And uh, you're going to be drafting those dice and using them to make stained glass windows. And it is done by, uh, you will, uh, at the start of the game, pick uh, a grid that you're going to be trying to uh, fill with dice. And you want to match uh, uh, the uh, variables on uh, the little grid that you're trying to do. And you're trying to keep in mind two really key rules that make this game a little more sweaty and a little more tense maybe than some of the other games. One is that you can never place uh, uh, two uh, dice of the same uh, color next to each other or uh, two dice of the same uh, value next to each other. The values are and thematically supposed to represent different shades. So uh, you can never place like two ones uh, next to each other anywhere on your grid. You can never place two blues or something like that. 
once you start, uh, every game of Sagrada is basically like starts out like, oh, this is fun. Look at me, I'm putting down my little, my little uh, dice here. I'm gonna put a blue here. Maybe I'll put a red over here. And then really quickly you realize you painted yourself into a corner, and it starts to get really, really tough. Uh, in addition to just trying to complete uh, your grid, there are scoring opportunities for uh, completing different rows. Uh, or different uh, diag diagonal uh, rows or columns and things uh, that meet different scoring goals that are different for each game. Um, so, you know, it might be like uh, uh, having... Uh, what are some of the scoring goals that, that come up yeah. in this? Yeah, so, know? like, you might get... Uh, you, might, you have a couple public goals that everybody's going for. Like, mm -hmm. you might get points for every row that doesn't um, have repeat numbers. Or you yeah. might get points for every column that has no repeat colors yeah. and things like that. So you want to try and, you know, have the most varied window that you can have. Alternatively, there's also your pub, your private goal that is going to be either the sum total of one color of die. So maybe all the purple die, the faces that you can see, because as you put it on your your window, only one side is going to be up. That's the number that you're going to be using. So the max total of that color is going to be... The points that you get or perhaps it might be the max total of certain areas on your board so it's not just trying to f get it finished it's also trying to meet these various criteria as you progress along the game as well so this game is kind of i, I feel like in many ways it's a mix between the two as well yeah. because the as, as you roll you are taking from a shared pool and each round you might get to the end and there's only one die left to take and mm -hmm. so you have to figure out where that's going to go. And it becomes difficult. It gives way more difficult the further on you get into the game when your design space is, the design choices that you have are so, or the choices you have are so limited in where you can put it. And mm -hmm. there are tools that the game gives you to mitigate those where maybe you can flip a die to the opposite number or you can replace it from one from the turn tracker where the extra die each round will always go to. So you can work around with it. And if you're smart, you can do that. But having the scoring being related to the placement and numbers on your die means that you're not just focused on finishing it. You also have to finish it in a specific way to actually score well and win the game, which is interesting because a lot of these games are just full, solely based around, like, can you fill it in and do you fill it in a certain way? But in this game, the scoring is almost completely aside from can you fill it in, but have you filled it in correctly? Yeah. I want to talk about the artisan tools for a minute because, and you mentioned that I think it's a really cool part of the game. Uh, it so so random randomness is obviously a part of Sagrada. Each round, one of the players will roll a big uh, handful of dice and chunk them down in the middle of the area, and everybody drafts from that. And so the mix. Uh, oh, and I forgot to mention, you draw from a bag the dice you're going to roll that round. Uh, so you don't even necessarily know like what color of dice are going to be available or what uh, obviously what numbers are going to be available each potential round. So maybe you really need purples, and that round of not a lot of purples even came out. So there's a lot of uh, randomness in Sagrada that can be a little off-putting, but you do have the option to mitigate the randomness to some degree using artisan tools. 
which basically uh, you can uh, you have some uh, little tokens, some little beads that you can place on uh, a tool when you want to use it. And the tool might let you, like Ian said, change the value, the number on a dice. It might let you sub in uh, a dice for a color where it's not supposed to go. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that the the artisan tools let you bend the rolls. But this is the best part of it uh, to me is there's an incentive to not use those if you can. Uh, if you do not spend your little beads that let you activate the uh, artisan tools, you get points for them at the end. So there's this pressure to like treat those as a desperate last resort. And I think that adds a little bit extra layer of kind of really fun tension where you want to try to make the dice work for you if you absolutely can. And you only want to use... The artisan tools if it's going to set you up for like a big score that kind of offsets losing you know a point um it's just a fun game it's a game where you have to hold a lot of different like things in your head at one time where you're like okay i'm trying to follow the pattern that i've picked but i'm also trying to keep in mind the scoring opportunity that like in this game one of the public goals is to have this diagonal row of blues or something so i'm trying to build toward that while also doing this and it just gets really interesting. It's a little bit, uh, it's tense, but I find it to be really satisfying. It's my favorite of the games, for sure. I do like this one a lot. I believe this is also my wife's favorite of the ones that you know we've talked about today. And I think the reason that this is really good is because when you're introducing people to the game, really like you can win the game, but there's two layers, two levels, I believe, of enjoyment that can be had here. Because when you first explain the game to someone, the the first time you play, it's all just going to be about understanding the like understanding the difficulty as the game goes on and fitting things in and getting things done correctly. And the first time you play, you almost never complete your window. You may have instances where a die cannot go because there will be a number or a color that is directly next to it. And that die just goes away. You're going to have an empty space in your window. So your window will not be completed. So I think just being able to complete your window and not having empty spaces in it at all, while it's not impossible and it's definitely not super difficult being able to get that and not have any holes at all is a very satisfying thing to do because it doesn't happen all the time and so even if you don't score super great just finishing your window in is in and of itself a very satisfying conclusion to your game now you can win by scoring super well and if you're focused on that and if you do really well that of course is is always fun and it's it's fun to play in a very solid way but i like that the game gives you another way to feel like you did well at the game besides just scoring well because that's something that like azul if you don't score well then you didn't really get any satisfaction from it because the t- mosaic is never going to be fully completed anyways yeah this one's good i i have the i agree with you completely this is a game that is for the most part satisfying even when you don't win because you do feel like you made something and it's, it's just it's it has that aesthetic quality it's very pretty i love the dice uh I've, i'm on the record many times on the show about how much i think dice are a fantastic mechanic in games so people hate them but i love them and this game has great dice it's fun to roll the big handful each round and then have to figure out like, okay, now what are we dealing with? Like, it's just, there's an element of like surprise that comes each round when the dice come rattling out and you have to think like, okay, how am I going to make that work for me? Uh, the drafting in this is not as brutal as the drafting in Azul because Azul has that thing where you take all of one color from a, from a, one of the little, I don't know, loading areas or whatever. Uh, and that can really like, uh, 
be hard because you end up taking more of a color than you really need or uh anyway that this is just you just take one die at a time and it's uh and figure out what you're going to do with it so it's not quite as brutal as the drafting in azul uh, but I really like this one. I think it's fun. I think it is aesthetically pleasing. Um, it's not quite as cozy. It does split the difference, I think, between uh, the challenge of Azul and kind of the coziness of uh, of uh, Calico. So this is probably my pick for my favorite uh, pattern builder. It is a fantastical game. And just as a quick, you know, I don't think we mentioned it, but this is actually based off of the idea of building the stained glass windows for the Sagrada Familia, which is the largest sorry um which is the largest unfinished roman catholic church it was actually started in 1882 and is still in progress to this day it is an absolutely gorgeous piece of construction definitely check out some of the pictures it's still being built it's been built completely with private donations so it's taken a while but it's really neat to have something based on an actual physical uh architectural like construct uh, an actual physical building that is, is still being worked on which is very cool Yes, I was gonna bring that up, but I uh, wasn't brave enough because I couldn't remember the 100% remember if it was a Sagrada Familia, and I didn't want to say it until I'm dumb. <laughs> it is is a super cool building, a very fun game. Those are three of, I would argue, some of the best. You know, like pattern kind of you know abstract strategy games, but definitely three really solid ones. And if you're interested in any sort of cozy chill games, you know, for like a, a solid date night or a lower player count, definitely check these out. That is, of course, the episode for this week. We do appreciate you guys listening. And as always, if you did enjoy it, consider leaving us a like, review, maybe you know share us to somebody else. We'd love to get to, to interact with as many people as possible. And if you do want to reach out to us, Matt, where can people reach out to us? Uh, you need to look for us on Instagram. Search for at Dice Pirates, and uh, you will find all of our cool posts about the games we're playing. Lots of reviews, thoughts, insights, uh, fun updates, unboxings, all the jazz. Uh, we'd love for you to join us there at our little Dice Pirates community. Uh, not the biggest uh, board game community on Instagram, but we think we're the funnest. Now, this is normally the point where I would say to watch out for the episode coming out next week, although I will actually be traveling. My wife and I celebrated our fifth anniversary last week. Very excited, and actually a celebration. We're going to do a trip. We're actually going to go visit Sagrada Familia. We're going to visit some other places around Europe. We're going to see some fantastic things. So I will be gone for a couple weeks. I don't know if we are planning an episode. Matt and Aaron might do something, but regardless, schedule might be a little off for a couple weeks. So keep an eye out for that. But regardless, we will be back eventually. So keep an eye out for that right here on the Dice Pirates. Mm-hmm.